Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle, a run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Athletic Obscure Podcast, the podcast that's the home of the weird, strange, and unknown in sports. My name is Seth Mormon, and across the table for me, as always, is my good friend, Richard Manning. How you doing, Seth? Good. At, how are you doing, everybody? Yep, yep. Uh, right. I'm, I'm doing good. Hey, we are recording uh, leading right up to Thanksgiving. All right. And uh, Thanksgiving sort of reminds me of, of football season. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, kind of, right? <laughs> <laughs> Deep into football season. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I was at a, a, a high school football game last night uh, in, in the playoffs here locally, and um, big football games coming up on Thursday. At least this Thursday, football is going to be better than usual NFL Thursday night football. Well, we, well, you just skipped the Lions game because they're awful this sure. year. Yeah. Uh, uh, Cowboys game should be interesting because I don't think the Cowboys are as good as people think. Yeah, right. I think they I, haven't beaten a really, really good team. Uh, right. And I think we show the Patriots shellacking the Falcons. Yep. Uh, doing the thing that they usually do in Atlanta and put up 25 unanswered points. <laughs> that was um, not good. No. Um, um, we just got a few weeks left in the NFL. College bowl season's around the corner. Uh, CFL uh, ended yesterday, so they got their uh, playoffs that are set. Rider uh, Nation, woo! <laughs> they made it into the playoffs. That's I know. Right. You uh, sound shocked. Uh, well, the BC Lions, my team never even didn't even make it. So, but they did just wallop the uh, Edmonton uh, Elks yeah. last night. So that's good. Uh, 108th Grey Cup is being played in Hamilton on December the 12th this year, that's, and that is that's late. Yeah, and Hamilton is is cold. It it could it could be Winnipeg, so it could be worse. Yeah, um, but this is the the first time since 1972 that the Grey Cup is being played in December, and it is the latest date that the Grey Cup has ever been played. Yeah, usually it wraps up in November. I think this right. week would have been the usual uh, week for the Day Cup, uh, Grey Cup as we're recording this. We're recording it's, this the Sunday before uh, or the Saturday before uh, Thanksgiving. Um, yep. But yeah, but it makes total sense for a couple of reasons. I mean, first of all. First of all, you have the weather, which yep. is pretty self-explanatory. Sure. You mentioned Winnipeg. But also, it allows the CFL to get out of the way of the NHL. Yep. And that's very, very important because, you know, it's, we're right around the corner where we're all hitting the one-quarter mark. I think the teams are played game 16, 17 about this point. Uh, and let's be honest here. Canadians care about the NHL a whole lot more than they care about the CFL. That is true. I mean, there's there's a good chunk of CFL fans in Canada. And yeah. They're pretty rabid, especially uh, Saskatchewan, um, mm-hmm. especially in uh, Calgary. Yeah. Um, Hamilton, I would say. Yeah. Um, the other ones, Saskatchewan eh. and Hamilton, makes sense because they have no uh, NHL team. Right. Right. So. so it's 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 what it's what they got to go to. It, uh, I, I have a friend of mine who played in the CFL, and uh, he said the coldest he's ever been was uh, in, in Winnipeg uh, in November uh, yeah. playing a game. He said it was just awful. Just yeah. awful. He said he, he saw grown men cry. It was so cold. Oh, man. Uh, so, Rich, when you think of football, what are some things that come to your mind? Oh, gosh, a lot. Uh, but one particular thing that resonates is family. Um, oh, sure. I grew up in a Steelers household. I'm uh, sorry. My, no, it's okay. <laughs> my mom's originally from Western Pennsylvania, about 140 miles north of Pittsburgh. Um, so my football memories revolve, my first football memories re- revolve around the Steelers dynasty in the 70s. Sure, of course. You know, Terry Brashaw, Franco Harris. I was thinking uh, Lynn Swan, Swan. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Jack Lambert, Jack yeah. Ham, uh, you know. Ron Stallworth. John Stallworth. Oh, is that Ron? Yeah. Boy, sorry, Mr. Whoops. Stallworth. Um, yeah, 
my dad's a Rams fan. He grew up in Trenton, New Jersey. Yeah. But he was so enamored by the Rams' pass-heavy offense when he was growing up in the 50s, he just kind of took to the Rams. Oh, even back then? Even back then, yeah. He, okay. Because he, he was old enough to re- remember, you know, when he was like 11, 12, one of the teams of like Norm Van Brocklin and okay. Elroy Crazy Legs Hirsch and all that. So he just became enamored with that. And so... Needless to say, that led to some interesting times in our house. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, you know, when they played each other in Super Bowl Fifteen. Sure. Uh, yeah, it was uh, it was weird. But then, then again, my mom's always been kind of weird with that. Um, uh, at Super Bowl Fifteen. I remember lying on the couch and I was sick as a dog. I had like a high fever, and I was I was you know the Rams were my team as a kid, and I just it was like a fever dream. I don't really remember it, but I sort of remember it. And then, anyways, crazy. Keep yeah, going. So, I'm sorry. No, no, no. That's okay. No, I just have to say just how rabid my mom is for the Steelers. So, 1994, my dad and I were at my parents' house watching the AFC Championship game between the Chargers and the Steelers. Oh yeah, oh yeah. And we made the mistake of not rooting for the Steelers. Whoops. Uh, early in the third quarter, she voluntold us to run a few errands. <laughs> so she essentially kicked us out of the house. We spent the rest of the game listening to it on the radio. Oh, no. So we heard you know, Lee Hacksaw Hamilton's call of them scoring the game when he touched down the, the goal line stand and saying we're going to the Super Bowl. The lesson here is you really don't speak ill of the Pittsburgh Steelers in front of my mom. Oh, so if she's listening, I apologize. Yeah, no. <laughs> She actually once bought me, she actually uh, saw a Terry Bradshaw throwback jersey in uh, a Sears, and she just bought it for me. She's like, you need to have this. Oh, okay. So, yeah. So, what about you? Um, In a previous episode, I talked about my uh, full football uniform I got when I was a kid. I used to wear that everywhere. I I used to put that football uniform on, and I would play, like, football in in the house. Now, I never played organized tackle football. I played flag football in middle school. I was terrible. Mm -hmm. I coached it a little bit. um, But really, I, I I played a game of football, like, by myself I would like throw the ball like up in the air and then I would like run and then I would like catch the pass and and uh, uh, I know you're not supposed to play football in the house but I did it all the time um, my parents uh, were big fans of a, a American colonial decor so like our house looked like Ethan Allen threw up in it you know <laughs> it was it was all of this stuff everywhere so one of the things we had they had this little uh, blue uh, rug um, it was like a, I don't want to say crocheted. I don't even know what it was, but it, it, it was a, a collectible rug and it had a giant American Eagle on it. And I think there was like uh, arrows and talons. Uh, um, uh, ta- what am I want to say? Talons. The, the Eagle was holding arrows in his talons. Boy, I got problems today. <laughs> um, I would take that rug and I would put it smack in the middle of the living room. And that was like the 50 yard line. That was like the, the you know, the decoration on the 50-yard line, and I would pass the ball to myself, and I would be the TV announcers and everything. And my my dad always reminds me that my football IQ was pretty poor at that point because uh, I would get to the far side of the room and I would yell, touchline! I was such a dork. So. Well, if you were a dork, I was too because I did the exact same thing. I don't think we've ever talked about this, nope. but uh, I, I took things outside, though. I didn't play in the house, uh, but I played in my front yard, which meant I was – my dorkiness was on full display in the neighborhood. <laughs> I even had a red logoless football helmet with an old school uh, lineman's face mask that oh, I would cool. wear when I played, and I would do the same thing. The announcers, the whole bit, and I'm sure other people thought, in other people in the neighborhood had to think that I was that weirdo kid. Yeah, I, I did the same thing with like a Nerf basketball hoop in my in my uh, room. I would I would pretend that I was you know a Chick Hearn and 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 all those kind of things. And I did that, but I did that. I had the sense enough to uh, do it in my driveway, which was behind our house, <laughs> away from public view. And I didn't have a hoop, so I actually had an old garbage can. Yeah, sounds about right. And it was dumb. <laughs> yeah. Now, Rich, when it comes to the NFL, we both grew up in the Super Bowl era, and um, I was thinking about my first Super Bowl memory. If I can go back, um, I, and I had to kind of look it up. I knew it was the the Broncos playing somebody because mm-hmm. I remember the orange jersey. So I, I, I looked it up, and then it, I went, duh, of course, Super Bowl twelve, Cowboys, Broncos. Um, and I did think it was funny when I was a kid that there was a cowboy and, and, and a horse. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyways, yeah. What about and a cowboy and a horse? Yeah. yeah, yeah, and they were playing against each other. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I thought that was funny. I was twelve years old at that time. So, um, no, no, no I, I was. I was. Anyways, I was yeah. young. 
What about so, you, Rich? Yeah, so we already covered the Rams Steelers, and that yep. wasn't necessarily the first Super Bowl. I remember that would have been the second Steelers Cowboys game the year before. Sure. And I remember finding, and this is awesome because I remember finding this old church bulletin <laughs> from way back with that had notes on it between my parents deciding where they wanted to go to lunch before the Super Bowl started. Oh, okay. Because that Super Bowl was the last Super Bowl that started in the afternoon. Right, because then they moved it yeah. later and later and later. So it's like our church service was at 1030, so yeah. that was a tough decision. That was like, okay, we got to figure this out because the Super yeah. Bowl will start at 1, so we don't have much time. But, so, but yeah, so, you know, I guess they were trying to figure things out during the sermon. That's so, not a uh, good sermon that week. Or they yeah. were or were they were preoccupied. Sorry, Pastor Boxdorfer, wherever you are. I was <laughs> I was six. I have I I take no responsibility. Um but I also have a bunch of fond memories of the Super Bowl parties past as adult, but we don't necessarily need to get into some of those details. No, some of them are not necessarily um great for me as well um, yeah they're definitely not podcast friendly no that's for sure yeah uh well it seems today that many fans of the nfl um, are kind of oblivious to pre-super bowl era nfl like i would agree for many people like they think the nfl sort of begins with the super bowl and the nfl broadcast don't help that because it's always about the super bowl era or the nfl afl merger in 1970 right and yeah. and, and this seems like there's nothing before that but there's such a rich history uh, of the nfl before uh, even the AFL comes around and yeah. then before uh, the the merger and all of those things. And we're going to kind of get into uh, that story a little bit today in this episode. And we're not going as far back as the last few episodes, but we are going to go back uh, to 1934. And we're going to go back to the NFL championship game. But before we do, we do need to give a little bit of context. Um, Rich, tell us a little bit about the NFL before, say, 1967. All right. So I think a lot of us know that because the NFL kind of celebrated this last year that NFL uh, starts in 1920. Uh, so from 1920 to 1932, the league championship was decided by a winning percentage. Um, you know, kind of like how like the EPL uh, in soccer just kind of like yeah, no playoffs, no playoffs, just whoever has the best record. But in this case, because there were ties involved, um, you know, it was all about winning percentage. First championship game happens in 1933, and for this one, they decided the home field advantage would be decided by winning percentage. And then for going on from 1934 onward, that the league alternated hosts between the two conferences. Okay. So it was Western Conference, Eastern Conference. In 1933, uh, the Bears had the uh, best winning percentage, so they hosted the 33 championship game in Wrigley Field. Um, and it was always the Western and Eastern Conference between 1933 and 1936, except for 1950 to 1952 when it was American versus National. Of course. Which, yeah, trying to ride the coattails of baseball, I'm right, sure. Right. Well, and, of course, baseball was super popular at that point. Right. And, and by this time, 34, uh, 33, 34, in this championship era, quote, uh, it was pretty lawless. Uh, there wasn't a draft until 1936. Okay. And 1936 was also the first year where every team played the same number of games. Okay. So if you look at, like, the 33, 34 season, you know, those seasons – uh, you'll see teams playing 13 games. You'll also see other teams playing like 10. It's strange. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then there's a team that we'll have to cover later on. Uh, I found that there's a team that actually moved cities in the middle of the uh, 33 season. Oh, that goes back to like our second episode too. Yeah. yeah. So uh, the league really didn't start looking like the NFL, like we recognize it today until the mid to late 50s with more modern equipment formations and national recognition. I mean, sure. 1956 was the first year CBS broadcast games nationally, which really kind of set the tone. Yeah, and, and fifty. We'll, we'll get to that 56 game yes, a little bit will. later. Yeah, but all throughout this era, the Giants and the Bears were developed this rather enduring rivalry. These, now, now, when you're saying Giants-Bears, you're talking about like the same ones we know today, the right? The New York Giants and the Chicago Bears, Perfect. the ones that are not good currently in 2021 <laughs> but they were the two marquee teams of the league of this whole era right the giants were in the title game 14 times between 33 and 66 that's a lot and the bears were in the title game 10 times they played the, the, each other in the title game six times wow. some of which were rather significant right right uh they you know i think i mentioned this already they played in the first title game together in 1933 mm -hmm. where the bears won 23 21 in wrigley field 
And, you know, again, the 56 championship game was also significant, which we will get to later. But then, of course, there's the game that we're talking about today. Yeah, so let's set the stage a little bit for the 34 title game. All right, in the 34 season, the Chicago Bears, they dominated the NFL. Um, they, they won uh, um, all 13 of their games despite only playing five at home. <laughs> That's crazy. And yeah. I would imagine because they play the games that really feel, I would imagine that they just probably couldn't get the real estate. Sure. Yeah. And so. then they, and they just had to schedule it else elsewhere. Yeah. Um, from October 7th to 14th, uh, George Hallis's bears. Now when we talk George, George Hallis, give us a little bit of George Hallis. Richard. George Hallis, uh, Papa bear. He was like the first big name coach of the NFL and he's a legend. He's still revered. If you watch the bears on a Sunday, you'll see G uh, G S H on their uh, sleeves. Well, that's George S. Hallis. So they right. still, acknowledge uh Hallis uh today and he was like just the father of the modern NFL coach absolutely so in this span in October that they win three games all of them on the road and they win three games in eight days I think about that how right now they even even played a Wednesday game at Pittsburgh so okay this just made me think I think that means that there's been two games in the NFL that have played on Wednesday that I know of and both of them involved the Steelers. Oh, fantastic. Because we had... A, they a, had that Wednesday game last year because yeah, of COVID. Right, exactly. Yeah. Now, um, Bears, Bears' success was also... It, it was George Hallis for sure. They had a, a, a brilliant assistant coach named Ralph Jones. His offense used uh, what was called the T formation. Okay. They also used men in motion. Um, and, and this was really unheard a uh, concept at the time. Usually you line up, you set, you go. But they had uh, um, uh, uh, just a, an amazing, powerful offense. They outscored their opposition that season uh, by 200 points. <laughs> 286 to 86. Oh, man. That also means their defense is pretty dang good, too. Absolutely, yep. Hallis uh, later wrote, here's a quote, Our modern T formation with man in motion was the most successful strategy in football. Even so, very few coaches and players saw the lesson in it. They still continued with wings and boxes. And that was fine with me. <laughs> of course it was. Yep. Um, let's talk about some of the players. The middle of the Bears line uh, was uh, uh, manned by, by two behemoths. 268-pound George Musso and Link Lyman, uh, a mere 246 pounds. <laughs> All right. Those are, those are big guys. But if you think about modern NFL players, too, yeah. they're, they're big, but they're not as big as especially some of the offensive linemen. Now, yeah. Musso would be the one easy to spot in the, during the championship game. Um, he did not wear a helmet. Yeah. So 1934 game, he's the only one who's not wearing a helmet. Now, the Bears... Almost lost when they came to the Polo Grounds November the 18th. Now, Polo Grounds is where the Giants were playing. Uh-huh. This is also 1934, so the Giants are playing there. Now, the Yankees have moved in to, to Yankee, Stadium. Yankee St- Stadium by this time. And the Polo Grounds keeps coming up in this podcast. All the time. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the Bears just barely win. That was not a pun I really wanted to say, but uh, it just fell out of my oh, mouth here. Oh, that's terrible. Uh, they won 10-9 to nine, uh, over the Giants. Um and they had played the Giants two weeks earlier at Wrigley Field and beat them twenty-seven to seven. Okay, All right. So the Bears are are the juggernaut here. And now, if they go back to what you had talked about earlier, Richard, this idea of winning percentage, uh, yeah, we get to host. Then they would have hosted again, but they decided no, we're going to flip flop it, flop to the Eastern so, Conference. So now let's talk about the East. The Giants end up finishing eight and five. Okay, but it's still good enough to win the division. Yeah, right. Eight and five, and they get to host the game. All right. Um, the Bears then travel to New York um, for the December 9th meeting, and they're going to meet at the Polo Grounds. Uh, the undefeated Monsters of the Midway, uh, they're a heavy favorite. They're, they're favored 8-5 to five to defend the championship. All right. Um, especially because the Giants have tons of injuries coming into the game. All right. Yeah. We could go through a, a, a ton of them. Um, you know, one of their stars, Ed... What's his last name? Badgro. Badgro. Yeah, um, uh, was out. Uh, the uh, fullback, linebacker, and place kicker for the Giants, Ken Strong, was out. Starting quarterback Harry Newman had injured a vertebrae in the Bears games three weeks earlier, so he was out for the season. All right, um, but you got rookie Ed Danowski from nearby Fordham filled Harry's shoes uh, uh, as quarterback. Right, jumping back to the Ken Strong though, I yep. mean, just so you, you know, to set the table. He actually did play in the game injured. 
Okay, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and he actually plays pretty heavily in the story. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. Um, also, the visitors, um, well, the, the bears are going to play without the services of halfback Beady Feathers. You might not know that name, but but dig this. That season, he had 8.4 yards per carry. Yeah. 8.4 yards per still carry. Still an NFL record. Yeah. Now, granted, they didn't play as many games, and he has just over 1,000 yards. Yeah, first player to ever break the 1,000-yard barrier. Right. Yeah. A- amazing. Now, really, he was successful because of somebody you probably have heard of before, Bronco Nagurski. Um, yeah. And he was just he was amazing. Um, and he, when Bronk ran the ball, he didn't have a lead blocker. You know, he was the lead blocker yeah. and the runner at, at the same time. Um, so, go so I, I just got to say, I, I got to give some love to uh, Bronk because Bronco Nagurski, even when I first heard about him, when, uh, when I was like 10 or 11 years old, um, he just seemed like to be this mythical beast, uh, of uh, of a guy and uh he really was a beast and he's still um beloved uh and still recognized so the athletic which uh you know just that pace uh, uh sports paid uh, sure, sure. uh that did a uh, recently did a best 100 players ever list a couple months ago and they put Nagurski at 33 oh that's 33rd player of all time so great and the story of Bronk who by the way his real name is Bronislaw he was oh, okay. the uh, parent, he was born of Polish Ukrainian immigrants. It's all pure legend. Okay, it really is. I mean, so some of the legends uh, that that about this guy. So there's a legend about him as a boy. He plowed the f- he plow a field up in International Falls, Minnesota, at his farm without a horse, <laughs> and he once picked up the plow to use it to point directions with the plow in his hand to a stranger. Oh, my gosh. And he would later say that it wasn't a very big plow. Oh, whatever. Yeah. Uh, he played both sides of the ball, and he was so strong that he would knock players out as a defensive tackle and as a fullback. Amazing. So Amazing. And But dig this. In 1930, Bronk ran into uh, headfirst into the brick wall at Wrigley Field during a game against the Packers after scoring a two-yard touchdown. He ran with it such full force, he actually cracked the wall. <laughs> And Hallis apparently would go to really field and point out the spot where Nagurski cracked the wall with his head. Oh, wow, that's amazing. And they said the momentum carried him to the wall. And when they asked if he was okay, uh, he apparently said, who the heck was that last guy? <laughs> um, here's an awesome story I love. The year after, 1931, he ran into a mounted policeman off the sidelines, and he said both the policeman and the horse flying. <laughs> Allegedly, he actually said... He told the cop, "Is like, yeah, you should get out of the way. I, I'm, I'm sorry, but you should get out of the way when I'm coming. And apparently he walked over to the horse and said, sorry, horse, <laughs> which I love. So he gets to the Hall of Fame. His Hall of Fame ring measures a size 19 and a half. That's huge. It's still the biggest ring ever made for a Hall of Famer. That's crazy. So Bronco Nagurski is like, yeah. Let's go back to Beady Feathers for just a second, the halfback. Yeah. Um, a thousand yard rusher. Um, he he hated socks, right? <laughs> yeah, okay, like Don Johnson. Right, <laughs> right, exactly. So he never wore socks when he put his cleats on, um, which I think is fascinating. The other part that I found fascinating is that the NFL didn't manda- mandate socks until 1945. That's weird. So he, anyways. That's weird. And then there's one other thing. So we already talked about Feathers and Nagurski. The Bears also had one more running back on their roster, and... This guy by the name of Red Grange. Yeah, heard uh, of him. The Galloping Ghost. He was the NFL's first superstar. Absolutely. He's the one that really kind of like put the NFL on the map in the 20s. And the 34 championship game would be his final game. And I never realized until I was researching this that Grange was on that team. That's fascinating. All right. So, so that's setting up the story. But, Richard, we got to take a break. All right. Um, we're going to take a break. We're going to get back and get into the game itself. Uh, we we got to give uh, a, a little bit of a, a run-up to it because there's a, a couple of events that happen that are going to be extremely important to the 1934 NFL Championship game. But we'll get back to that in a second. Sounds good. You ready? Showtime. 
On May 3rd, summer starts with the Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Rich and I may be new at podcasting, but our podcast partner is not. We use Anchor.fm to host and distribute the Athletic Obscura podcast. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way we have found to make and distribute a podcast. Let me explain. First of all, it's totally free, which is a huge selling point for us. Second, there are a ton of creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. No additional software needed and no complex programs to learn. Once you've recorded your podcast, Anchor will distribute it for you, so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many, many more. One of the coolest things is that you can actually make money from your podcast right away. No need to wait to grow your audience as there are no minimum listener requirements to be met, which helps you when you're just starting out. Anchor has everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. And we're back. Uh, thanks for coming back. I don't know if you went anywhere. You probably just listened to me give a, a stupid little uh, um, you know, sponsor. Anyways, we're grateful for our sponsors, uh, Anchor.fm. Anyways, we were talking about the 1934 NFL championship game way before Super Bowls, right? Yeah. Chicago Bears, New York Giants. Now, Rich, lots of intrigue between these teams. Uh, but there was something else that would prove extremely impactful, the weather. Yes, this is really the first weather game i mean there's been history of uh weather games in the nfl uh throughout its history like the ice bowl sure uh the fog bowl playoff game between the bears and the eagles yeah. uh the afc championship game between the Bengals and the chargers where it was like 59 degrees uh, below zero with the wind chill factor yeah there's this, like that. there's a snow game uh in, in new england with uh with, with the, the tuck rule and the snow plow uh, right that would yep. yeah, mm-hmm, there, there's a lot of those yeah now, um, the the rain was, was falling. This is early December in New York, but the rain was falling, and the, the field in the polo grounds was basically just a, a lake. And Hallis said that, that they went and they, they practiced in the mud, and then that night, uh, a, a nor'easter swept over New York. Now, I'm not from the east, but I understand super cold, all right? Yeah. Um, and they, they went... Uh, <laughs> Alice said he went to mass and, and the thermometer was nine degrees. And so all the puddles in the street had turned to ice. Now it, it was a, a clear day and, and the sun was shining and that kind of melted a little bit of the ice. Um, but they got to the field and it, there was a, just a little bit of water, but it was mostly ice. Okay. Right? Yeah. And the, the temperature was barely in double digits. Um, in the polo grounds, they said just over 35,000 people attended. Um, they could have put another 20,000 in that place. Um, but th- there wasn't a huge demand for the tickets. The fans paid $3.30 for a box seat, $2.20 uh-huh. for a grandstand seat, and $1.10 for a bleacher seat. Now, before you say, oh, my gosh, that is so cheap. Remember, we're in the throes of the Great Depression right. here. So. People had a scrounge for that three thirty if they wanted the good seats. Absolutely, and of course, people had to to, to bundle up um, if they're going to be there. Now there was lots of talk uh, on the field um, and in the in the locker room before the game. Um, three hours before uh, kickoff, uh, Jack Mara, uh, this is Giants president and son of owner Tim Mara. They went out and expected the field, uh, and they said, "Well, this is probably better for hockey than it is for football." Um, and uh, everything was frozen to the ground. Um, yeah, 
And so they, they were talking to each other about the tricky footing. The players went out for, for a, a quote-unquote warm-up. Yeah. I don't know how, how you're going to warm-up out there. Um, but they stumbled. They couldn't get a foothold. Uh, people were slipping on the ice, and they were just like, this is, this is not good. And I'll tell you, it's no exaggeration. If you ever look at photos from this game, you will see the field have, like, these patches of ice. It really does look like frozen ponds on the field you know yep. it's like better suited for hockey is accurate it's it's absolutely a wild uh wild visual absolutely so so captain of the team uh of, of the giants ray flattery um said to, to to owens um now it might sound crazy but one day when i was playing for gonzaga that's back in 1925 the ground was just like this so we switched from cleats to basketball shoes yep now if you didn't know about the sneaker game this is called the sneaker game. If you've heard of the sneaker game, yep, this is it. We're going to be talking about that. Yep. Um, but the question is, is it's Sunday morning. Where are you going to get sneakers on a Sunday morning? All right. The stores yeah. are closed. Um, and uh, who knows what's what's going to happen. Now, they started talking about this. Uh, and, and then it the story becomes muddy, Rich. Would you say that? Oh yeah, this the story right here becomes all kinds of legend and myth, and uh, it really you really have to really dig through a few resources to parse uh, a legend from reality. Yeah, I mean, the, the, I don't. Where, where should we go starting? I, I think. Well, the, okay, let's start with this. So, um, let's introduce uh, this guy named Abe Cohen. Sure. Good. Uh, so uh, Owen mentioned uh, the Giants returned to their locker room after their horrible pregame workout where they're slipping and sliding yep. uh, and all this. And Owen mentions uh, Flaherty's suggestion about the basketball sneakers to the Giants trainer, uh, Gus Mock. And he was more famous at the time for being the longtime trainer of the New York Yankees. Oh, okay. So the guy knows a thing or two uh, about that. So... The light bulb goes off his head, and he goes to uh, his assistant, Abe Cohen. Now, Abe Cohen is this five-foot little dude, yeah, uh, and he's a tra- uh, tailor by uh, trade, but he also made the uniforms for Manhattan College. So uh, Mock decides, hey, he has access to Manhattan College. Why don't you send him down there because it's at the Bronx and not too far from the polo grounds, sure. and maybe he can find some sneakers there. Well, the thing is, is the same ice to cover the polo grounds made the streets slick too, so the trip took a lot longer than usual for Cohen. Yeah, so so that's pretty much known that that, that is exactly how it went, that, that that's what happened. But there, this, this is where now it starts getting weird. Here's all the legend. It's so filled with all these legendary accounts. One has Cohen taking a taxi. Another puts him on a subway. One version has him with a key to the Manhattan locker room. Uh, another says that Cohen had a break in. Still, another one claims that Mock had called an official at the school who was waiting when Cohen arrived. Another account, which is the the, the funniest for me, is uh, they claim the shoes were gathered by Manhattan College's athletic director, a guy by the name of Brother Jasper, which is the namesake for Manhattan College's uh, Manhattan Jasper's athletic yep, teams. Yep. There's a problem with this though. Jasper was the AD back in the late 1800s. So he could have still been so there. So not there. Um, but, yeah, there's other tall tales that I heard growing up. Uh, the one that I remember hearing the first time I heard the story was that the shoes came from NYU. Yeah, I heard which, of that, too. Which isn't the case, because if you look logistically on a map, that would have meant that if he would have had a hop on the subway, and NYU was in the Bowery, in the Lower East Side, uh, you know, where, like, you know, the East Villages, if yeah. you're familiar with that. And he would have to go bisect the entire island of manhattan to get to the polo grounds so yeah that would have been crazy and the other thing is i also heard this romanticized version of you know cohen running down the sidelines of the the giant sidelines midway through the third quarter with his box of sneakers his trench coat flapping in the breeze (laughs) like some superhero cape and that actually dovetails with the whole nyu thing and which is complete fabrication well somehow he he gets a hold of some sneakers. Yes. Because they're saying, this is going to give us better traction on the ice here. Right. You know, the, the cleats, they're just slipping all over the place. We're, we're not able to do anything. Now, 
the Giants begin the game wearing their regular cleats. We kind of know that. And the yeah. Bears were too. Um, and as you would expect, the Bears, the heavy favorite, they're undefeated. They jump out in front. The, they score a field goal in the first quarter. Um, that's just kind of how it goes. And then you've got the second quarter. Um, we, we get uh, – oh, I'm sorry. New York New York scores a, a – yeah, the New York the Giants have a three nothing lead at the end of the first quarter, but then uh, the the Bears wake up and just right. kind of you know Broncos scores a touchdown. Yeah, and and he he runs and runs and runs uh, in, yeah. in this game. Uh, Chicago scores a field goal uh, towards the end, so they're up ten to three at halftime. And now the the Giants are coming into the dressing room. Yeah, they're only down by seven, but they they are not doing great. Yeah, um, and and this is where they start talking about. Maybe because, we want to change into some sneakers. Yeah, because the sneakers are actually in the uh, locker room at halftime. So the whole romanticize of Cohen running, like I said, running down the sidelines, right. you know, giving in the middle of the third quarter, saying, "Here, go take." No, that's not how how it happened. Yeah, and so so it, it seems like they got about nine pairs. Mm-hmm. All right, obviously that's not enough for everybody to be wearing, um, but uh, but it's a whole lot better now now. At the beginning of the second half, Hallis looks and he, and he sees uh, the kicker wearing tennis shoes. Yeah. And, of course, his first kick squirts sideways out of bounds, and everybody just laughed. He ended up kicking it again, and the ball sailed into the end zone. All right. And then everybody stopped laughing. Uh-huh. All right. Uh, Hallis is quoted as saying, we started to drive up the field as we had in the first half, and we were at the sunny end, but even there, icy patches were starting to form. Our, my men slipped and slid uh, and upended, and one by one, the Giants, uh, and then one by one, the Giants changed into their tennis shoes. Yeah. Uh, and, then, and then Alice said, uh, I shouted to my team, step on their feet. <laughs> <laughs> which that didn't work either uh Hallis was was upset with it and he was yelling at the refs this ain't basketball and he was asking them to make uh, them change and put their cleats back on but there's no rule against this richard right you know and you know if it, you know it's equipment is equipment and they did not have any uh, regulations so that was smart and i actually read how like uh you know, you know, Strong was able to hit the ball. I also read that Danowski, the Giants' quarterback, he put it on. And all of a sudden, he could plant his, he could drop back and plant his feet firmly and right. get the leverage that he needed to throw the ball, which he didn't have prior. Yeah, and so so Bronco is now uh, he, he gets the, he gets carry after carry after carry, um, and uh, um, ha- things are are going well now. Sh- Chicago ends up scoring. Again in the fourth quarter, mm-hmm. or sorry, the third quarter, and now they're up thirteen to three. But the fourth quarter is a totally different story. Yeah, in the fourth quarter, you've got uh, a, a pass, um, a, a, a touchdown by the Giants. Um, then they score a field goal, so now it's a seventeen uh, thirteen. Uh, then they score another touchdown, so it's twenty three to thirteen. No, no, actually, they score. Uh, uh, two touchdowns because Strong breaks oh, off a 42-yard touchdown right. run. Yeah, and then Strong gets an 11-yard run, um, and then Donowski gets a 9-yard run, and, and it ends up being 30-13. to 13. Yeah, they wind up scoring uh, 28 unanswered points in the fourth quarter. And, and pretty much to a man, they say it's because they changed shoes. Yeah. That, that they had traction and the Bears just did not. Yeah, I mean, you know, Again, strong, like breaking off a couple of uh, nice touchdown runs, and he was playing injured. Right, exactly. Um, and so that's a that's a big deal. And uh, again, like you know, Donowski, the quarterback, you know, having that leverage and being able to just rip through this Bears defense. I mean, think about this: the Giants scored thirty points prior to this. The Bears had given up sixty-eight points. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So they almost scored as many points or half as many points as the, the Bears had given up the entire year. It's crazy. So, yeah, the sneakers did have something to do with it, I would say. Now, the last five minutes of the game were said were, were just kind of a weird spectacle. This was in uh, one of the Chicago papers. Um, Hysterically happy fans, scarcely able to comprehend the slaughter that was taking place before their unbelieving eyes, stormed out of the stands, over the sidelines, and onto the field. The better to see what was happening. To pat their champions on the back. The Giants had the ball at about the six-yard line in the corner, and the pressure of the fans became so great that it engulfed the Giants' bench, sweeping Steve Owen along its uh, irresistible surge. 
The coach never got back to the bench or his team until the game was over, until he had climbed the stairs to the clubhouse. Um, That's wild. Uh, but, again, context. Sure. Remember, this is the, in the middle of the Great Depression. Yeah. And so people were looking for any excuse to be happy because times are so miserable. Right. So I'm not sure that th- this amount of bedlam would have happened if the game had taken place without that historic context. Yeah, and and um, in the in the biggest city in America. Yeah. You know, this is their team. They're playing against the, the a, a rival in the second the second city. Yeah, exactly. You know. I mean, this, I mean, we we talk about like, and we'll talk about other games uh, a, a little bit here, but this really kind of sets the NFL stamp. This is the first game that really sets the stamp of what it, or the, what it could be like. Two yep. major markets playing this epic game that is the first game that actually gets a nickname. Right, The sneaker exactly. game. Yep. Um, and just the hysterically happy fans. Uh, like you had mentioned, um, yeah, that's just everything. The fans go crazy after the final gun. Now, remember, they, they actually had a, a gun that a they gun, would shoot yeah. off at the, at the very end. Uh, the West goalposts, uh, they said, lasted exactly two minutes uh, until they were torn <laughs> down. Uh, they, they swooped down. They tore them apart. They took pieces of it home as souvenirs. Um, the Giants' dressing room was a riotous scene. The, the, the players, you know, pummeled one another. They let out uh, just – they were just going crazy. Um, uh, when asked the har- about the hardest assignment of the day, Morgan replied, getting through the crowd into the dressing room. Yeah. It was the hardest part of the day. Uh, owner Tim Mara said, I, I uh, never was so pleased with anything in all my life, all the other contests with the Bears. I've always hoped that the whistle would blow and end the game. Today, I was hoping it would last for a couple of hours. Yeah. Now, Strong, uh, he finished with 94 yards on nine carries, and he said that it was the line that won the game. Uh, and he said, any back can run through a hole. Um, they're also gracious towards the Bears. If they had new cleats in the second half, they would have walloped us. Because uh, they said that the cleats basically wore down into nubs. Into nubs, yeah, and that made it even even worse. And then little Abe Cohen uh, congratulated Strong. Uh, Ken, I want to congratulate you. You played a wonderful game. But Strong replied, Abe, you're the man who won us the game. You deserve the write-ups. Yeah. So, um, now... Strong, the, yeah, Strong kind of rescinded that, though, that's later true. in life, right? Yeah, you know, he said maybe that wasn't really the sneakers that were big much a, of a factor. But, you know, I think if you look back to it, that really is is the big factor. Oh, 100%. But there was also another advantage that they had in play. Uh, they also had a little bit of liquid courage. <laughs> so the water buckets on the sidelines were all frozen, which of makes course. sense because it's like, Nine degrees, right? Yeah. Uh, so Mock winds up winds up giving the players swigs of whiskey from paper cups, which also <laughs> kept them warm. Now, considering that the co- country was less than a year removed from pro- the repeal of prohibition, it seems like a pretty big deal, right? Right? Yeah. Now it could have been brandy, and we could have had brandy in another episode of uh, of the podcast. <laughs> it could be, but this is a this is a pretty big deal. Because, Absolutely. Uh, you know, especially if you look at the history of whiskey in here. Yep. Yeah, I mean. Distilleries are just starting to put their stuff back out, and then later on, they get a government mandate to say, "Okay, you got to stop making whiskey for the masses, and you need to start putting your alcohol toward all these things for the war effort." Yeah, right. Fascinating stuff. You should yeah. dig that. Yeah, it's it's ridiculous stuff. Anyway, how are the Bears feeling about this? Well, <laughs> rather subdued. Do you remember uh, back in the day, Richard, at the end of like the the Super Bowl or or a big finals game, and they would you know go to the the one locker room and it'd be crazy in bedlam. They go to the other locker room and like the the announcer would go. So, how are you guys feeling today? Well, it's a hard one. You know, that's basically the locker room. Think, oh, things are not going yeah. well. Hallis en- en- ended up saying, um, "Quote: They deserve to win because they played a great game in that second half. The only bad break is that we was when uh, that touchdown was called back in the first half. Would have made the score seventeen to three and put us way out in front. My team was under a terrific strain. However, trying to maintain a winning streak which extended over thirty-one games." So a couple of different seasons here. After all, we've caused a lot of heartache, so I suppose we can stand one ourselves. Uh, Nagurski says, we feel that everyone has to lose sometime, but this is a pretty hard time to start. Uh, The Giants are a fine team, and their comeback in that second half was the greatest ever staged against us. 
Ken Strong uh, said, I thought the best man on the field. Uh, Ken Strong, I thought, was the best. This is still Nagurski's quote. I'm sorry. Ken Strong, I thought, was the best man on the field. And Donowski gave a nice exhibition. Morgan was a hard man to try to pass, while Mel Hine did a good job of backing up. They won it with the sneakers. They could, uh, they could cut back, and we couldn't. That's what Bronco said. Yeah. And then New York City was super happy uh, with the exceptional with the possible exception of Manhattan University uh, or Manhattan College because uh, the Giants returned the uh, sneakers to uh, the equipment manager the next day and they were all battered and misshapen and just ruined. Yeah. Could you imagine the thought of, oh, yeah, we'll just, we'll just give these back. Yeah. And remember, this is, uh, you know, Manhattan College is probably right in the middle of their basketball season too. Oh, right, December. So they had to go out and yeah. get a whole bunch of new sneakers. Oh, man. Didn't even think about that. I hope there's a good footlocker uh, somewhere in the uh, Upper West Side. Right. So. All right, let's talk a little bit of money here. Uh, the game ended up grossing $64,504 after deducting for taxes, and the players' pool provided each member of the winning team with a whopping 621 bucks, and each of the Chicago uh, players with $414. Which, again, doesn't sound too much, but again, Great Depression. Right. This is giant. This is huge for those yeah. guys. Now, each club ended up earning uh, $8,775.40, and the league pocketed a whopping $5,850.36. All right. Clearly, there was no halftime show. No, exactly. No, no, no big uh, halftime show. No, for sure. Benny Goodman did not like perform like a 30 minute uh, concert in the middle of a, you know, <laughs> Benny yeah. Goodman. Perfect. Uh, a couple of postscripts and, and, and these uh, we're going to go um, kind of deep into a couple of these postscripts. First of all, at the end uh, of the game, the Giants are awarded the Ed Thorpe Memorial Trophy, not not Jim Thorpe. Right. All right. This is Ed Thorpe. There's no E at the end of his name. That was the trophy. It ended up being awarded to the champions of the NFL from 34. So this is the first time it's awarded through 1967. All right. And the trophy is named uh, after Ed Thorpe, uh, a noted referee, rules expert, sporting goods dealer, friend to many of the early NFL owners. And Thorpe died in June of 1934. And they had a large traveling trophy that was made later that year. And it was supposed to be passed along from champion to champion. And they would uh, inscribe each of the team's name on it. So sort of like, like Stanley Cup. The Stanley Cup or the Grey Cup, yep. too. Yeah, absolutely. So the NFL had their own one. Now, why is this a big deal? Why is this a postscript? Well, Rich, what if I were to tell you that this trophy was lost for decades and <laughs> it's believed that the Minnesota Vikings lost it after they won the championship and people said that they have been cursed from winning a championship because they lost the Ed Thorpe Memorial Trophy. That's hysterical. And it's especially hysterical because, yeah, they won the championship, but they didn't win the Super Bowl. Correct. They won the NFL championship yep. uh, in 69, but lost Super Bowl four to the Chiefs. And I started digging into this a little bit, and that just scratches the surface of the mystery of the Ed Thorpe trophy. I feel like we have another podcast episode I coming out of this one. I think we do. <laughs> and I have a fascinating story, but I'll save that for another one. We're already working on that one, uh, a whole episode on the Ed Thorpe Memorial Trophy. It's going to be great. All right, right, that was postscript number one. Yeah. Postscript number two. Um, to make some more money, again, we're talking um, uh, Great Depression time, the Giants and the Bears end up meeting on January 27th in Los Angeles for an exhibition game. All right. Same two teams, but totally different place, totally different no setup. No ice. Chicago wins 21 nothing. Right. And technically, this was uh, Red Grange's last game, but it's an exhibition game, so it really yeah. doesn't count. Correct. Yeah. Correct, correct. All right. Postscript number three. George Hallis uh, said that at training camp the next fall, he got a big box that arrived. Of course, COD. Right? Yeah. Uh, kids, uh, COD means collect on delivery. That, yeah. like, you know, they had to pay for it. Uh, and it was filled with sneakers, tennis shoes. <laughs> he said there was hundreds of pairs. Now, they were all worn and they had holes in the soles. And, and he said he never did learn who, who sent it. Uh, but he, he did swear that no bear would ever go through another game without two pairs of tennis shoes in his equipment bag. That's hilarious. And I would have to imagine that that had about another odor. Oh, could you imagine? Oh, it had to be, though. I mean, I don't know if it was the Maras or maybe it was the Rudy family or somebody. It would be fun to, like, see if 
if anybody could connect the dots. But yeah. Hollis never found out, so I think that's going to be one of those uh, great mysteries. Right, exactly. All right, one more postscript, and this is going to be a lengthy one, and that comes uh, to that uh, aforementioned 1956 uh, NFL championship game. And it was between the Giants and... The Bears. The Bears, absolutely. Uh, now... If you know a little bit of your NFL history, or at least football history, you probably have heard that the 1958 NFL championship game is called the greatest game ever played. But that game is probably not the greatest game ever played, if not for the 1956 championship game. Yeah, I would agree with that. So let's get into the 56 championship game just a little bit. Um, The 56 championship game, uh, super significant. All right. Yeah. 56, the NFL stages what it's called the World Professional Football Championship Game. But I don't remember if the world was ever invited to participate in this. But No, Gary Premier didn't come over for the Dolphins <laughs> until the 70s. <laughs> exactly. All right. Now, this is uh, Giants and the Bears, but this is going to be taking place at Yankee Stadium. Um, and they say that th- this is just an amazing title game. Now, a little bit of history now. The NFL is 36 years old at the time. And obviously, it's not what it is today. Right. Uh, the game was not sold out, which uh-huh. is fascinating. TV uh, rights um, and and covering football on TV was very much in its infancy. Yeah. Again, this is 1956, so this is the first year that CBS Sports decided to broadcast national uh, NFL games nationally. Right. And and there's not the, the there's not the, um, the the secondary market of T-shirts, jerseys, yeah. stickers, umbrellas. Nobody's running around with uh, throwback Bronco Nagurski jerseys. No, no, none of that. I bet you somebody does now. And of course, it says Nagurski on the back, which, of course, he never had his name on. That, that annoys me. It, That's why nobody should ever buy like Yankees, uh, because Derek Jeter never wore a nameplate. Why are, yeah. does your jersey have it? Exactly. Oh, that's we all whole, know who wore number two anyway. That's crazy. Yeah. All right. Um, now, the 1956 championship game is won by the Giants um, handily. All right. 47 uh, to 7. Uh, 18 degree weather. So very similar. Yep. All right. But, but things – but this game kind of changes the landscape. The excitement, the glamour of professional football, really epitomized uh, by the Giants, really captivates New York's marketing and advertising community for the first time. Uh-huh. The TV networks uh, have a new sports vehicle that can help them grow. Uh, right, because remember, this is like the infancy of television, too, because they really the, – you know, this is where this whole new medium – TV in 1956 was kind of like smartphones coming out uh, a few years ago. Right, right. That's that kind of context. Now, one of the uh, uh, players of the game, Frank Gifford, maybe you know that name, uh, especially if if you remember watching uh, Monday Night Football from, you know, the 70s. Mm-hmm. Uh, or if you uh, watched uh, Regis and Kathy Lee right. talk show back uh, back a while back because Frank Gifford was Kathy Lee's uh, husband. So so Frank Gifford, um, we'll talk more about him in a little bit, but uh, he he's quoted as saying, I'll always believe that game and how it opened everyone's eyes to the excitement of pro football was the key to the development of the NFL, more so than the 1958 title game that gets more attention. All right? That yeah. was 50 years after that game is, is when Frank Gifford said that. Uh, he was a halfback for the Giants, uh, longtime play-by-play voice, NFL Monday Night Football. Um, yeah, so- and and honestly, it's like you got to really uh, think about that statement because Giants won the game by 40 points. Yep. And for Gifford to say that about a 40-point blowout, that must mean that there was something going on in that game that transcended uh, football in general. Yeah, let's get into one of them. One of them, one of those big things that transcends football is is the, the, the people who were involved. All right? Yes. Giants have two assistant coaches, one by the name of Vince Lombardi. Yeah. Right? And one by the name of Tom Landry. You may have heard of both of them. Vince Lombardi ran the offense. Tom Landry ran the defense. If you know your NFL history, that's crazy. Yeah, and if you don't, if you're still the person that just goes and watches the Super Bowl at your friend's house, you know the name Lombardi because his name is on the trophy. Right. And and Tom Landry ends up being the longtime coach of the Dallas Cowboys. Coach for almost 30 years. Yeah. Um, and 
what what uh, what the coach uh, Jim Lee uh, of the Giants said. Jim all Lee I, Hell. Yeah. Oh, oh, thanks for helping me with that. All I have to do with these guys around is check the curfews and pump up some footballs. <laughs> Uh, they say Vince and Tom take care of the rest. So those are kind of the big names, but there are more. Um, there are 15 players and coaches in the game that went on to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. All right, you got the Giants Gifford, you got Landry, you got Lombardi, you got tackle Roosevelt Brown, linebacker mm-hmm. Sam Huff, which you probably heard before, who passed away uh, recently. That's right. That's yeah. right. Defensive end Andy Robustelli, safety Emlyn Tanell. Bears defensive end Doug Atkins, quarterback kicker George Blanda. Right? Yeah, who was like, you know, who would play another, like, almost another 20 years after this game. I remember when George Blanda was an old man, you know, looked, gray hair looked like a grandpa on the field when he was playing yeah. for, for Oakland. Uh, assistant coach George Connor, head coach uh, Patty Driscoll, linebacker Bill George, guard Stan Jones, quarterback Sid Luckman. Probably have heard of Sid Luckman before. Yep. He and, held all of the Bears' records, uh, passing records, before uh, Jay Cutler came along. <laughs> I think that really tells you just how bad the Bears' quarterbacking woes have been. Absolutely. And then uh, center coach Clyde Bulldog-Turner. Now, Robustelli, who later owned a successful sports marketing travel agency in uh, Stamford, Connecticut, helped the team with his playing and his entrepreneurial skills. He had ordered... This is for the Giants. Ordered 48 pairs of sneakers from the U.S. Keds. Remember wearing Keds, Richard? Keds. I, uh, no, I was. I never did. I was a Buster Brown guy. Oh, I was a Keds kid. All right. <laughs> uh, but he ordered 48 pairs of sneakers the week before the game, uh, just in case uh, the weather was going to be bad and the field was going to be frozen. Guess what? The sneakers made all the difference. Of course. So in some ways, this is... Sneaker game two, electric boogaloo. <laughs> exactly. Yep. The second sneaker game. The Giants wear the new sneakers from the beginning of the game. Uh, it was uh, 22 years earlier that they had done that in the 1934 championship game. Um, but fascinating. But sneaker game two, a lot of other players, but there's lots of different quotes and anecdotes. And we want to kind of run through a couple of these, Richard. Yeah. Go for it. First, uh, Wellington Mara. Uh, this is uh, Giants ownership. Remembered the attitude of his players. It was the culmination of a team of overachievers. Uh, we had some lickings uh, during the year. Okay. The winning player share. Now, remember what we just talked about from 1934. The mm-hmm. winning player share is now $3,779.19, which was a record. Yeah. And the loser share ends up being $2,485.16, also a record. And again, 1956, that's a pretty big money. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Second sneakers game that that they had happening in New York as well. Before this game in 56, Hal sent out two of his players to the frozen field. Um, Ed Hughes wore regular cleats, running back. Gene Fapliski uh, wore the sneakers. And a few yards into the sprint, Hughes took a hard spill, and he lost traction. And uh, Filipiski, I can't say that name. Uh, Flipski. Filipski. Filipski. Thank you. They said Filipski had no trouble with the footing. And so everyone wore sneakers, uh, Howell (laughs) announced. Um, I don't know where they got theirs, the Bears head coach, uh, Patty Driscoll, said. But those sneakers were way better than ours. Their soles were thicker than the soles on our shoes, and I think that helped their footing greatly. Um, There's one person, I remember reading this in some of the uh, um, uh, research, that one person said, I think the sneakers that we used for that game were the ones that Hallis had in 34. uh, Or or 35 that he got sent in that that box. That's awesome. Um, They said, uh, so it was super, super cold. Uh Um, It was so cold that the mimeograph machine in the press box froze. That might not mean anything anything to most of the people who are listening to us no that's okay that meant the writers actually had to write something instead right. of like do cliches and the mimeograph is that old uh, uh way that we used to make copies that looks like purple on it yep. and when the teacher would hand it out we'd all s- smell it if it was brand yep. new that was anyway um think about this richard um they they sold six thousand tickets at the gate the morning of the game all right. Could you imagine just walking up to the, the Super Bowl and there's like 6,000 seats, tickets available the morning of the game? Now, the some of the fans started at like 7.30 uh, in the morning, uh, but they ended up only selling about 56,000 uh, t- seats. They could have sold 67,000 seats. The, the math doesn't seem to, to, right. to work out exactly here. They could have sold a whole lot more. They could have sold like 11,000 more tickets. Yeah, and 
you also got to think New York at this time, uh, they're pretty spoiled with their sports. Oh, without a doubt. Because this is the decade where, like, everybody, you know, every team in New York went to the World Series. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Was the stat that uh, at least uh, between 48 or 47 and 66, the World Series featured a team that either played in New York or formerly played in New York, with the exception of the 48 World Series. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah. Uh, Giants defensive coach Tom Landry had uh, just retired as a player coach, which was pretty amazing before the season, and he he really make made the the defense kind of stars. Mm-hmm. Before this time, it's really just offensive players, but he he popularized popularized the four three defense. All right, most teams were using five man fronts at this yep. time, but he's now got a four three defense, and this becomes pretty much the standard. Um, after this. Yeah, I mean, there wasn't any significant change to uh, defensive formations until the 3-4 defense came around. Correct. Yeah. Correct. That's Buddy Ryan. Right? No, that no, was the 46. Oh, the 46. 3-4 happened, like, in, I think in the late 70s, early okay. 80s. We'll have to look that up. I'm not good at those. Yeah. All right, so you have fans now that know some of the defensive players. All right, Sam Huff. Um, uh, who just shut down uh, the Bears' fullback, uh, only let the, them have 43 rushing yards. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the first time in club history that the Giants introduced the defense before the game. Okay. There are teams who do that now. Right. You know, I, I think uh, I think the Ravens maybe do that, um, and a couple of others have yeah. done that before the game. And this is what they say. that For the first time, the chant, defense, 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 was heard in, in, the, uh, in the crowd. So every single Sunday in every single stadium during the NFL season, you got somebody who's got the big giant cutout D and D somebody and with a big picket fence. fence. Yep. You know, this goes back to the 56 NFL championship game. Um. So much in that game, we probably could have talked a little bit more about it. I thought I knew a lot about the sneakers game. I didn't even know there was a second sneakers game. I didn't either. I knew that the 56 game happened. I knew that the Giants destroyed them. But I also knew that that kind of was like a blip between um, you know, what the Cleveland Browns were doing in that decade because the 50s were all about the Cleveland Browns right. until right. you know, pretty much to the 58 championship game. Um, well, and, and, and we think now the futility of the Browns, right? you know, but they were a powerhouse. Yeah. And really, we think about the, we kind of think of the futility of the Bears right now, right? Because they haven't won a Super Bowl in 30, you know, almost 40 years now. And yep. it's kind of, you kind of don't equate success with the Chicago Bears, but this was all apologies to the Green Bay Packers. This was the powerhouse team of that pre-NFL Super Bowl era. Right, right, right. And it happened at the right time with with television and with the rivalry and all of these things to really kind of explode the NFL into, you know, popularity. And it just happened that the NFL, I mean, you got to realize how happy CBS had to be that the first year that they get national rights to promote this as a means to hopefully grow their fledgling television network. And the championship game involves the two biggest cities in the country, right. the two biggest media markets, lots of eyeballs, big ratings. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's enormous. Um, anything else, Rich? Uh, just, it's just an incredible uh, story. And there's a lot of great things that happened. Uh, prior to the Super Bowl era in the NFL. And, you know, we'll dive into some of the cooler stuff um, in future episodes. But, I mean, there's, it's, you, you got stuff like, you know, trash talking between these old teams and teams getting together because of the war effort. And you have uh, owners who wind up being, like, incredibly racist. And right, right. just, you know, just, just colorful characters, colorful players, uh, you know, guys that are just that would probably, if they played in the NFL today with the modern rules, would probably just shred defenses. Right, right, right. Absolutely. So, um, it, it, I would I would encourage you to do your homework. 
uh, I'm not talking to you, Rich. I'm talking to the people listening to yeah. us uh, about uh, the NFL uh, history pre-Super Bowl. Now, with the NFL's 100th anniversary last year, there's a whole lot of great history that that uh, came back uh, up to to the forefront of people um, uh, learning about it. That's the the. The ESPN Plus uh, show uh, Peyton's Places goes through the history of of uh, the NFL. Fascinating things. Uh, he's he's done most of that. Some of that could have been a cool podcast at some point, but maybe I'll just point you to listening or watching some of those. Yeah, Peyton. Say we will about Peyton Manning, but the dude is a student of the game, and he yep. he knows a lot. Yep. 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 Good stuff. Hey, yeah. everybody, thanks so much for, for taking time to listen. If you do have a topic idea for us, oh, maybe I'll do the music here. Hey. Yeah, hey, there oh, we go. I almost forgot about that. Um, if you want to chat with us, agree, disagree, send us an email. I'm going to put a link to that email in the show notes. It's athleticobscura at gmail.com. Please subscribe, rate, comment on the pod, podcast platform of your choice. I messed up on that a couple weeks ago, too. Anyways, you did. this helps us out a lot. Uh, look us up on Good Pods. I've been look, listening to that uh, a lot. Has some cool little social media elements you can uh, see what your friends are listening to anyways i'm not even getting paid to say that but good pods if you're listening we'd love to give you some shout outs and you can give us a little scratch as well uh you can send us a tip versus the good pod and the good pods app if you go in there speaking of tips you can support the show very easily if you've enjoyed this episode or any of the other episodes you can go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash athletic obscura and you can buy us a coffee. Well, actually, I've set it up. You can buy some pizza. Um, that would be awesome. I think that's better anyways. Yeah. But I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes. We would love that. And, and Rich, we'll use that to actually buy pizza, I think. Yeah. Yep. Radio people don't they'll think that we're like scrawny, skinny people. So that no. we need to eat. So, exactly. We yeah. do need to eat. Uh, please connect with us on Twitter. Uh, we're at Athletic Obscura. Uh, we post weird, strange, and unknown tidbits just about every day. We'd love to connect with you there. If you're interested in sponsoring the show in a more substantial way, feel free to check us out. Uh, contact us via email. We'll get the ball rolling on that. Don't forget to check out anchor.fm for all of your podcast needs. Now, Rich, I know I teased the episode about the Ed Thorpe Memorial Trophy, but we're working on a couple of other episodes as well. Yes. We're going to be working on one talking about sports during wartime, especially leading up and coming out of World War II. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I'm working on a couple of special guests. Really? Yeah. That, oh, this is this is good. We're, We're going to have actually... at least one person in studio and uh, maybe a couple people um, joining in uh, via the internet or phone or something like that. So, so we have five listeners. That's awesome. We've got at least five. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, anyways, until yes. next time, we invite you to another discussion of the weird, strange, and unknown in sports. Adios, everybody. See ya. Hi, I'm Lessa Cadet, host of Her Extraordinary Life by Design podcast, where we celebrate women who are shaping their lives one extraordinary day at a time. I speak with women from all over the world about what they do and how they are passionately pursuing their dreams and creating meaningful impacts on their communities. So come join us and learn about all there is to learn about these extraordinary women. Hey, guys, it's Miriam Love here. And I want to share something very special with you. Check out my new release, All In, the Spanish remixes, out now on Electric Cast Records. And always remember, be love, share love, all love. Available now wherever you listen to music. Trick-ass.